You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 27 as we continue our series called When the Righteous Suffer. This is our 10th sermon in this series, and this is the beginning of Job's final speech in this book. We have heard Job speak of many things so far in this book. He has lamented the day of his birth. He has complained about his friends, and rightly so. He has often defended his innocence. He has questioned God's justice, and he has hoped in a redeemer to come. Now as Job begins his final speech, his focus shifts to a topic that he hasn't really addressed yet. And yet, this topic is a central theme in the entire book of Job. And it is a major lesson for those who are enduring or who will endure through a long season of suffering. And that topic is wisdom. Wisdom. You think about how the world defines wisdom, the the world tends to see wisdom as the ability to provide insight that produces desired results. The ability to provide insight that produces desired results. If someone gives you good advice regarding some marriage difficulty you have that, that helps you to see your problem in a certain way and perhaps gives you some practical applications, you say that that person has wisdom. Or say someone is counseling you with some personal issue that you have in your life. You struggle with laziness or with guilt or with a lack of purpose. And that person helps you to see something that you didn't see before and shows you a way forward. You say that that person had wisdom. By the world standards, wisdom is measured by its results. We know someone is wise if they have the ability to make our problems go away. Now, the Bible's view of wisdom certainly includes an element of problem-solving. Biblical wisdom does help us to, to understand, diagnose, and resolve our problems, but biblical wisdom does much more than that, because biblical wisdom isn't just about problem solving. Biblical wisdom is about how we relate to God. It's about how we let our view of God shape our view of the world and how we are to live within it. You could say that, that worldly wisdom is horizontally focused. It's, it's all about us. It's about the problems that we have, and it's about the solutions that we need. But biblical wisdom is vertically focused. It's all about God. It's about understanding who God is and letting the knowledge of God shape our understanding of who we are and how we are to live in the world. And that includes the ability and understanding to know how to suffer within the world as well. Because to live in the world, if we are to be realists here, to live in it is to suffer within it. And biblical wisdom is what equips us to suffer well. That doesn't mean that it just teaches us to grin and bear it or to ignore our pain, but it does mean that that it trains us to see our suffering differently in a way that deepens our faith rather than diminishing it. And so the title of this sermon is The Role of Wisdom in Suffering. The Role of Wisdom in Suffering. We're going to have two points today. First, the limits of human wisdom. 
And second, the treasure of divine wisdom. Now, chapter 27 is an example of what happens when we apply worldly wisdom to our life's difficulties. It begins with Job making his most forceful defense of his innocence yet. It says, Job again took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. What Job is doing is here is he is swearing an oath. He's making a solemn promise that he will not agree with the friend's accusations that he is guilty of gross sin. He is swearing that as certainly as God lives, he will not give up his claim to his integrity, his claim that he is indeed innocent by confessing to sins that he did not commit. Now notice that his oath captures his conflicting thoughts about God. This isn't just about his friends, this is about his God. On the one hand, he calls God the one who has taken away my right. He calls God the one who has made my soul bitter. But on the other hand, he acknowledges God as the one whose spirit fills his nostrils. It is the spirit of God, literally the breath of God that, that animates him, that gives him life. That's a reference, of course, to Genesis 2, when God forms the first man, Adam, from the dust and breathes into his nostrils the breath of God. Job knows that God is both the afflictor and the sustainer of his life. The one who makes his soul bitter, yes, but also the one who gives his soul life. He is an example both of a, a sufferer who is struggling with the, the heavy burden of God's providence and a man of faith who trusts that God is with him. Job then launches into what we call an imprecatory prayer. It's a fancy word for a category of prayer where you call down God's vengeance on your enemies. If you've read the Psalms, it's unavoidable to, to read imprecatory prayers. God, punish those who oppose me. Contend with those who contend against me. Tear down their homes. Uh, do these horrible things to these people who have done horrible things to me. Now, what distinguishes Job's imprecatory prayer is that he is calling down these curses not on those who are outrightly hostile to him, but on those who call themselves his friends. He says in verse seven, let my enemy be as the wicked and let him, let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. When Job references his enemy here in verse seven, he's, he's referencing his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we don't need to speculate about that. That's right in the text. Right in verses 11 and 12, Job shifts tense from third person to second person plural, where he says, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal? Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? And so Job here is calling down God's curse on his three friends because his three friends feel as if they have become his enemies. 
In some ways, they deserve that title. Scholars have called Job's friends Satan's prosecutors. Satan has not spoken since chapter 2. Since he appeared before God as he assembled his heavenly cabinet, uh, Satan has not spoken since that time. But his fingerprints and his message, are they are all over the words of the three friends. Think about what the three friends have done. They have accused Job. They have condemned Job. And that is what Satan does. The book of Revelation calls Satan the accuser of our brothers because accusing is his job. That's what he does. He has no power or authority over our own souls. He is not our judge. He is not our executioner. He is our accuser. All he can do is bring our list of sins before the throne room of God and say that we are not worthy of eternal life. That is what Job's friends have done. They have accused him of doing wicked things so that they can make sense of his situation based on their worldview, that this kind of thing that has happened to Job only happens to the wicked. And that is why Job feels like they have become his enemies. Now, I wonder if if you have ever experienced something like that, where those who are closest to you, your dear friends, your beloved family members, have felt as if they were your enemies. Perhaps it's a close friend who betrayed you, or an adult child who has rejected you. Perhaps it's your husband or your wife when, in the heat of an intense argument, you begin to doubt whether this person who pledged their life to you in their marriage vows really does indeed love you. It's a sad reality of life that those who are closest to us can actually feel like they are the furthest away from us. How do we respond to that? How do you respond to that when your loved ones feel like they are your enemies? Well, perhaps you respond like Job in calling down curses on them. Verse seven, he says, let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me be as the righteous. Job is praying that what happens to the wicked, what happens to the unrighteous would happen to his friends. And he describes this in detail in verses 13 to 23. I'm not gonna read them. You can read them for yourself, but it is, it is not a pretty picture. Job gets into the specifics of what is brewing in the darkness of his heart what he hopes will happen to these friends who have afflicted him. He hopes that their children will die. He hopes that his, his friend's children will starve. He, he hopes that their wealth will rot. He hopes that their homes will, will blow away like a cocoon. He hopes that creation itself will rally against them and terrify them by being opposed to them. Now, when we are in an intense argument with our spouse or with our friend, we may not get that specific. But Job certainly expresses how we may feel. We want justice, don't we? We want, we want those who have hurt us to feel some of the hurt that they have given to us because that seems fair. That seems just. And that is what human wisdom looks like. That is what human wisdom Demands Human wisdom calls for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Absolute equality. People get what they deserve. People should ta- get a taste of their own medicine. Job may not know this, but he has actually fallen into the same trap as his friends. 
what they were saying to him, he's now saying to them. You are wicked, and so you should suffer. You should get what you deserve. Now, there is certainly a place for justice. The psalmists weren't sinning when they prayed for justice against their enemies. In fact, there is something virtuous about praying for justice without demanding it for yourself or seeking it by your own means. As Paul said in Romans 12, verse 19, this is so instructive. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That is, don't seek justice for yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Christians don't seek justice for themselves, but that doesn't mean that they don't care about justice. They they entrust justice with God because it is his role to judge and not ours. Our role is not to judge. Our role is to love. Our role is to even love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who curse us. Or as Paul continues in that very same passage, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we see that Job's problem here, Job's flaw here, isn't that he prayed for justice. It is that justice is all he wanted. He didn't want his friends to receive God's mercy or grace. He didn't want them to be redeemed, forgiven, or restored. All he wanted was for them to suffer. He wanted justice, pure, naked justice. But here's the amazing thing. If you know the book of Job, you know how it ends. And you know that that even as God confirms that Job was right and the friends were wrong, this, this has... God's divine seal of approval on it. Job's friends were wrong. What they said about Job, it was wrong. What they said about God was wrong. God confirms that at the end of the book. And yet, God does not repay the friends the way that Job expected him to. He doesn't bring the sword upon their children. He doesn't bring rot upon their wealth. No, he he turns away his wrath and he forgives them and he restores them. If the book of Job teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is not like us and neither is his wisdom like our wisdom. And and that is a wonderfully comforting truth. Even as we cry out for justice and vengeance in our bloodlust, God turns and redeems. When, When we want punishment, when we want hurt for those who have hurt us, God offers his forgiveness. Such is the heart of God for sinners. That no one is too far from his mercy. No one can outrun his grace. This is the difference between human wisdom and divine wisdom. Human wisdom oversimplifies and sees the world as black and white and says it always has to be like this all the time. Evil must always be punished. Good deeds must always be rewarded. People must always get what they deserve. But God does not operate on the basis of human wisdom, but on divine wisdom, where there is a time for justice, but there's also a time for mercy. There is a time for wrath, but there is also a time for grace. Don't you want to become like that? Don't you want to become less like 
us in our limited human wisdom and more like God in his divine wisdom? Well, how, how do we become like that? How do we stop operating on the limits of human wisdom that is so inherently flawed and begin to think like God? And this leads to our second point, the treasure of divine wisdom. Now, chapter 28, I encourage you to read it in its entirety at home. It is one of the most beautiful poems in all of scripture on the priceless value of wisdom. And it is, in fact, a foreshadowing of the main point of the book of Job. This is, this is one of those moments where the clouds part for a moment and a ray of sunshine beams down and we can see clearly for the first time. And out of all Job's speeches, this is the only chapter that doesn't contain any complaints, any grief, no lament. It is just a beautiful meditation on wisdom. It is just truth wrapped in beauty. It is as if Job himself has reached a moment of clarity where he sees rightly for the first time. Now this poem begins with a reflection on human innovation and exploration. Job says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Now, if you've ever wondered whether there is a poem about mining in the Bible, here it is. This is a poem about the beautiful innovation and exploration of digging deep holes. And Job is amazed. He is amazed at human ingenuity, and he's calling the reader to join him in his amazement. And when you stop and think about what human beings have been able to make, whenever, whenever I drive downtown and I see the CN Tower, and I see the skyscrapers, and I see the massive condos, I say, wow, human beings built that. That is amazing. We're, we're not just hunters and gatherers who just take what we see and eat it. We, we dig deep into the earth to find hidden metals that seem to be useless, but then we, we melt them and we, we put them in our, in our furnaces and we shape them into new things. We, we make bridges and cars and skyscrapers out of them. God has given us an incredible ability to exercise dominion over the earth, to take what God has given us and to make something new. And yet, and yet, despite all of our exploration and innovation, we cannot find the one thing that matters most. No matter how far we look, how hard we search, we cannot find the one thing that exceeds everything else in value. Verses 12 to 14, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. You cannot find wisdom by searching for it like we do for treasures, nor can you buy it, verses 15 to 19. It cannot be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it. 
nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. You hear Job's message? Job is saying, wisdom is not for sale. You can't hire a tutor who will teach you wisdom. You can't buy a mountaintop retreat to meditate on wisdom. You can't exchange all the wealth in the world for a single ounce of true biblical wisdom. Verses 20 and 22 actually say that we won't even find wisdom in the realms of the dead. Even if you were to personify death and take this character Abaddon, which Revelation calls the angel of the bottomless pit, they would say, oh yeah, I've heard a rumor of it, but I don't actually know what it is. And I can't tell you where to find it. So if we can't find it, and we can't buy it, then where is it? Where do we find wisdom? Job finally tells us in verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. Do you see where wisdom is found? Wisdom is found in God because God knows the way to wisdom. But, but notice where God finds it. God finds wisdom when he looks to the ends of the earth, when he sees everything under the heavens. He, he sees wisdom when he gives weight to the wind. When he portions out the waters, when he decrees thunder and lightning, he declares that wisdom is there because he is the one who has established wisdom in creation. In other words, wisdom is in fact found in creation because God has infused his wisdom into creation. He has infused it into the physical part of his creation and he has infused it into the moral and spiritual parts of his creation. God's wisdom is built into the heavens and the earth, both the seen things and the unseen things. And and that is where we go wrong. We can search the entire world. We can look out at everything under the heavens, look out upon all the face of the earth and not find wisdom because we do not see what God sees. We, we can find glimpses of wisdom here and there. That's why Proverbs teaches us that we can look to the ant, O sluggard, and learn about hard work. We can look to lions and learn what it means to be courageous and bold. But we can't see it all. Only God sees it all. And he sees wisdom everywhere because he sees everything Job's poem on wisdom ends with a quotation from God himself as God tells us how to find this wisdom from him. It says, and he said to man, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job is showing us the key. He's giving us the map to wisdom, to divine wisdom, to to abandoning the limits of human wisdom to find the beauty and priceless treasure of, of God's wisdom. Wisdom is not found in a place. Wisdom is found in a person. It's not found in conversations with self-help gurus 
or corporate consultants or the seemingly wise sages of the earth. It is found exclusively in a worshipful relationship with God. That is what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is not to cower away in terror. To fear the Lord is to tremble with delight at the awesome power and infinite wisdom of a holy God and to feel our hearts and our souls drawn nearer to him in adoration. To fear the Lord is to be aware that we are in the presence of perfect, undiluted greatness and goodness. A divine being who is like us, yes, but so unlike us at the same time. It is to recognize that this is the one true living God. The one who could devastate us with a word or save us by his grace. My friends, this is where wisdom is found. It is found in a right relationship with God. A relationship that is characterized not by familiarity, but by biblical fear. By wonder, awe, and submission. It is a relationship that recognizes that God is God. And we are not. And we could never approach this God if he did not invite us to. We could never look on this God and live if he did not lift up our heads to behold his glory. Job teaches us that wisdom isn't knowing all the answers. Listen, wisdom is not knowing all the answers. Wisdom is knowing the one who has the answers, but often chooses in his wisdom to conceal the answers from us. It is found in giving up our claim to be wise, our our assertion of right to knowledge, and submitting to the one who is truly wise so that his wisdom increasingly shapes the way that we see ourselves and we see the world and we see our suffering. This changes not only what we believe, but how we live. It changes both our knowledge and our action. When we live in the fear of the Lord, we give up the belief that we are entitled to know why things happen to us. And we also give up the belief that we know what's best for ourselves. And that's why verse 28 adds that wisdom includes turning away from evil. We, we don't just know what is right, we, we live in the right way. When we think that we know what's best for ourselves, when we believe that we are wise in our own eyes, we embrace evil because our sinful nature inclines to what transgresses God's law. But when we stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in the Lord and living in the fear of the Lord, we start living according to God's will and we turn away from evil. Wise knowledge and wise living always go together. And that is why, if you remember, that Job is described in chapter one and two as the man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. He turns away from evil evil because he trusts that what God has said is evil is in fact so. You, You cannot be wise and live in unrepentant sin at the same time. You cannot be wise and reject what the Bible has has taught about what is good and what is evil. Wise knowledge and wise living always go together. And they're only seen in those who trust in God and not in themselves. Proverbs 3 verse 7 summarizes this perfectly when it says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And here's the amazing thing. When we learn to not be wise in our own eyes, but to fear the Lord and turn away from evil, we begin to understand just how different God's wisdom is from 
our wisdom. We begin to understand that God's wisdom isn't ultimately, ultimately displayed in the depths of the sea or in the heights of heaven, but on a hill called Calvary, where the king of creation was crucified. My friends, that is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is not just God on his throne, high and lifted up. It is Christ beaten, betrayed, and crucified. It is Christ abandoned, mocked, and afflicted. It is Christ rejected as foolish by the wisdom of the world to show us that our wisdom means nothing. The Apostle Paul wrote, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Listen, God's wisdom has always been manifested in weakness. Weakness in Christ and weakness in those who trust in Christ. The more we come to fear the Lord and turn away from evil, the more we will come to see that God's wisdom is displayed not in our strength, but in our suffering. Just as God's wisdom was displayed in Christ's suffering. This is the key to understanding and persevering through our afflictions, through our pain, through our trials, through our loss. When people who don't know God's wisdom suffer, they only see that suffering as pain and inconvenience. Just get rid of it as quickly as possible. But when those who fear the Lord suffer, they not only see purpose, they experience joy. Not in the suffering, but because of what the suffering is accomplishing. They know that God is manifesting his perfect wisdom and power in their lives. God has planned it. God has measured it. God has dispensed it in his infinite, perfect wisdom for our good and for his glory, just as he did for Christ. And so if you've never put your trust in Jesus before, God calls you to do so today. God invites you to know the one who is wisdom and whose wisdom and power are manifested not in strength but in weakness. His power and wisdom were manifested in Christ crucified and they can be manifested in your pain today. Jesus Christ is unlike any savior you could imagine, you could fabricate in your own mind. He is not a savior for the strong he condemns the strong. He opposes the proud. He, he forsakes those who are confident in themselves. No, Christ is a savior for the weak. He welcomes the weak. He gives grace to the humble. He dwells with those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. So come to Jesus, and he will forgive you, he will restore you, and he will sustain you. He will treat you as you do not deserve with the very welcome of God and for those who have already put their trust in Christ, these chapters in Job are meant to ignite in our hearts a hunger for wisdom. It's not a hunger for the answers to our suffering. It's, it's not a hunger for the solutions that will just make our lives a little bit easier. It's a hunger for the one who knows the answers and who chooses in his wisdom to conceal them from us. Now the thing about wisdom is that it 
It is not automatic, it is not instant, it does not come to us when we want. Wisdom takes time and wisdom takes effort. It can't be downloaded, it can't be purchased, it can't be copied. It must be learned slowly over time. Yes, we we can learn wisdom from experienced believers who have also learned wisdom because as Proverbs says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. That is a call to biblical fellowship, to not live your Christian life by yourself, but to walk with the wise that you also would become wise. But, but wisdom is best learned by walking with the one who is all wise. Wisdom is learned through a daily pursuit of God himself as he has revealed himself in his word. It is learned in the daily cultivation of the awe and wonder that are the expressions of a fear of the Lord. It is learned in beholding the wisdom of God in Christ, crucified, who died in our place for our sins. My friends, that that is where we find wisdom. You want to know what the wise life looks like? Look at our crucified Savior. Look at how he lived. Look at the path of the cross. And there you will find wisdom. And that is where we also will find peace and comfort and perseverance through our own suffering. I give you this promise in closing from Proverbs chapter two. If you seek wisdom like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let's pray. Father, how we long to be people who seek wisdom like silver, who treasure it as hidden jewels deep in the earth. I pray that we would value wisdom the way that you value wisdom. If wisdom is precious in your sight, it should be precious in ours. And I pray that the wisdom that we apply to our lives and to the lives of others would not be like the wisdom of Job's friends, And it would not even be the wisdom that Job shows in this book, but the wisdom that Christ has displayed in his suffering, in his love, in his mercy. That we would be a people who show the world what true wisdom looks like, a wisdom that is characterized by weakness and not by strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.